That was a good one. It yeah. like gets better every time you do it. Every time, man. Surprise! <laughs> Belated birthday present. This dude's been grinding since day one. Yeah, and it's something like, who are these dipshits? Exactly. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> Grindcasters, welcome to another episode of the Grind and Gain Show. I'm Andrew. And I'm Johnny. Johnny, what's happening, man? Not much, bud. Just uh, living that quarantine life. (laughs) Not a lot's changed since our last episode. Well, I'm excited for today's guest. Uh, He is the chief physician for the city of LA's Department of Public Health. Hopefully I put that in the right order. Dr. Leo Moore, welcome to the show. How's it going, man? I'm great. I'm great. The COVID-19 response is keeping me busy, but I'm good. How are you guys? We're hanging in there. Same, man. Doing all right. Leo, I know you got to get to kind of one disclaimer out of the way. You want to knock it out? Yes. So I'm joining the show today as an advocate. So the views that I'm expressing are my own and do not reflect Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Perfect. Now we get the the legal stuff out of the way. We can get down to business. (laughs) So Leo, uh, I noticed within the last couple of weeks and kind of in response to COVID-19, you started a new Instagram account called The Practical MD. What's the basis and kind of the background and the, and the goal for that account. So I started the Practical MD because I noticed there was a lot of misinformation, particularly among friends and family members and just what I was seeing on social media where a lot of what was being said was based on fear, misinformation, based on um, stereotypes even. I even noticed uh, a lot of racism towards uh, Asian people because of, you know, Very some of the hard. things being said by, um, you know, by people in government, by um, people yeah. who are in power. And what I wanted to do was create a platform that provides evidence-based information uh, that is easy to understand and relatable for people and easily digestible, I think, because so much of what we share in, in medicine can be seen as, or can be delivered in a way that's too complex and really just needs to be broken down to the most simple and easiest um, bites that people can take in and and understand and then be able to incorporate into their lives. So I started with COVID-19, but that's just the first uh, topic that I to tackle. There are so many other health topics affecting people uh, in this country. And so I want to want to help however I can. That's cool. I like uh, I, I like digestible. I like that term. Yeah, it's definitely um, this is definitely something that I think we need right now. You know, you you turn on the TV and I, for lack of a better term, this uh, this other podcast I listen to, they call it fear porn. All these uh, it's just the worst case scenario everywhere you look. Everything is gloom and doom. And I feel like it's because, uh, you know, just news and the media has kind of just turned into a, um, a commodity and they're just trying to sell it. And it's just uh, just more more views, more clicks, more everything. And uh, to have have your voice in there and uh, be able to share that that information in a digestible way. That's going to be nice. I'm going to check that out. Well, Johnny, you know, you bring up a great point um, because so much of this is around clickbait that many people don't know that. Over 80% of people with COVID-19 
will recover and won't need to go to the hospital. But we, every day we're seeing such a focus on those who need to be hospitalized and not enough focus on those who are not needing to be hospitalized and the fact that people are recovering and being able to re-enter society. So I think we need a more balanced uh, approach and and more balanced news delivery than we're seeing currently. Totally agree with that. Yeah, I saw the one post where you were... um you listed like activities to do during quarantine. You listed, you know, the packets, the the thousand milligram packets of emergency can actually help, you know, boost your immune system. So taking one of those days, so we went out and got those. So we've actually, I've actually personally paid attention to some of it and tried to incorporate in our, my, mine and my family's daily regimen. I'm really glad to hear that. You know, every year we have a flu season, right? So the things that I'm sharing on Practical MD and, you know, I think are things that can be incorporated really for the rest of your life. Taking vitamin C and boosting your immune system or vitamin D or incorporating ginger or other natural immune boosters are going to help, you know, for the long term. And so I'm glad that COVID-19 kind of spurred me along to do this, but the things mm-hmm. that I'm sharing are really going to help people uh, for the rest of their lives. Sure. Well, that's awesome, man. All right. Well, um, I kind of want to switch gears off of the COVID stuff. Maybe we'll circle back to that later, but um, really wanted to get into more of your journey and how you got to where you are. You know, we were just catching up and I mean, it's been almost 20 years since we've even talk to each other. Uh, so a lot's happened between now and then, but, uh, you know, looking up online and, um, just kind of following your story, it all kind of traced back to, to this one point in sophomore year when you were reading a book, uh, Ben Carson's gifted hands. And he said that that changed your life. And I wonder if you could uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I said that I wanted to be a doctor since I was five years old. Um, okay. I'm from a family of nurses so it, in my family, you're either a nurse or you're a preacher. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to go into the medical field pretty early on. Um, but it really wasn't until reading Gifted Hands sophomore year that I decided that, hey, if I'm really going to reach this goal, I've got to change some things. And reading Gifted Hands by Ben Carson uh, showed me through his story and his journey that um, because he house where there was only um, his mother who could not read, but she pushed him to go to the library every week and get books and uh, to read and to do book reports and to grow. And I thought to myself, if he could become a neurosurgeon coming from a household where his mother couldn't even read, then surely with my mother being a nurse and making sure that we have everything that we need, uh, I can focus my energy, you know, and, and I can really take take life and the things that I'm learning seriously and make this goal a reality. So um, after reading that book sophomore year, and I remember I read it over Christmas break. So um, during that fall semester, I think my GPA was like, you know, 2.9, 3.0. That spring semester after reading that book, my GPA was a 3.5. And I finished out uh, my entire senior year with a 4.0. Um, so it really started at reading that book and saying, Hey, I'm going to pay more attention to, um, my classes and my teachers, and I'm going to stay after if I need to for tutoring. Uh, and I'm just going to take every experience, 
uh, to heart and really try to give it my best. And that really has served me well over the last few years, you know, and, and throughout my journey. So I'm definitely grateful for Ben Carson's gifted hands and having read it at that time in life. So this was at Columbus State, and then you, you've bounced around a little bit between Columbus State College and, and now, and I saw online that you did your residency at Yale. So what was that like, and how does kind of uh, being in the Big Apple, New York City, how does that compare to where you're at now? So that was sophomore year of high school, ironically, when I read that book, um, and then on to Columbus State. Um, Columbus State, uh, because I'd read the book and I was so focused, um, I was then able to keep a 3.75 GPA throughout college. And that made it easy to get into medical school at Morehouse. And then I did residency uh, at Yale, you know. And so while I was in residency, being in an Ivy League was, you know, institution for me was totally different from anything I'd experienced. Also being in the Northeast, you know, growing up in in Atlanta and then moving to uh, New Haven, Connecticut and having to navigate snow and (laughs) getting a four wheel car for the first time ever in life and having to leave, um, leave the hospital after a 24 hour call and drive 45 minutes through snow to get home. Uh, definitely was a challenging experience, but it was so rewarding. I learned so much. Um, when I was interviewed for residency, I interviewed with a uh, physician who actually was a main writer for the show house. Oh, wow. And so I learned from Dr. Lisa, who is a internal medicine physician, and she's also a writer, and she has a column in the New York Times, and she also has a new show on on Netflix called Diagnosed. Um, and so learning from amazing people who are on the forefront of their career and, you know, people who are, are truly esteemed uh, faculty and and, um, you know, caregivers was definitely something that has shaped my career and for the better. Did you have more than one option um, for your residency? Like, were there a couple places you're looking? So there were a few places that I was looking, but, you know, the residency process, the match process is interesting. You put in a list um, of of spots of residency um locations that you're interested in attending. And then those go into a computer and all the residencies rank you as well. And it goes in into that same computer algorithm. And then on match day, you find out where you're going for residency. Um, so I was, I was blessed and grateful that I got my first choice, which was Yale uh, School of Medicine, primary care internal medicine residency program. Uh, but other sites that I was looking at were Albert Einstein in the Bronx. They have a really strong program. Uh, You know, right now the Bronx is being hit pretty hard with Mm COVID-19, but they have a great hospital uh, there and and great faculty and and providers there. Where else? I was also looking at Brown. I think Brown was my third choice uh, as well. They have a great primary care internal medicine program. I knew I wanted to do internal medicine, primary care, and I also knew I wanted to do public health. Uh, So I wanted a strong foundation in internal medicine or medicine for adults to then be able to build on that and add in the public health component. So 
after residency, I went on to do a fellowship at UCLA where I got a master's in health policy and management. So that was then where I was able to tie in uh, some policy, some community research and some public health tools that uh, helped me in my current career. So speaking of your current career, uh, first, the first question I have to ask you is what exactly does the chief physician for the, uh, the city of LA or is it county? It's county, LA County. <laughs> LA County, what exactly do you do? So what's interesting about chief physician and about working for county or for government is usually there's an item that you sit on and then you have a functional title. So chief physician one is my item, um, but my title is medical director for clinic services, uh, for service planning areas one through four. So service planning areas are uh, smaller, smaller geographic regions within a county. Uh, and okay. so in our county, there are eight service planning areas. We call them spas. So there are eight spas and I oversee the top half of the county. So that's from all the way up in the Antelope Valley area, Lancaster, Palmdale area of LA County, all the way down to Hollywood. Um, and so I oversee nine public health clinics that are within those four spas. Uh, and then I have a colleague who who uh, oversees spas five through eight, which are the southern half of LA County. You know, we our public health clinics, they see STD patients, they see tuberculosis patients, uh, and we're also coordinating uh, the coronavirus response as well, sure. because if there are patients who need to be tested, they come into our clinics to be uh, tested for COVID-19. So are you developing kind of like policies and procedures based on the environment and how it's shifting uh, in the medical field or, or are you and your colleague kind of, you know, collaborating on that for, for your territories to in response to what's going on? Yes, to, to all of that. So we are developing policies as we go because as you can imagine, this is an outbreak. This is new terrain for all of us, what we're learning about coronavirus. So we are developing policies as we go. We are um, incorporating in the science as it develops the new science every day. We are coordinating with other teams within public health to make sure that the community is aware of the best ways to protect themselves. Um, we're ensuring that when uh, patients come into our clinics that they are uh, safety safe while they're in our clinics and you know are uh, keeping the necessary precautions to protect themselves and others uh, wh while in our clinics and when they're out in the community as well. So um, so definitely you know at this point I would say eighty percent of our work has really shifted to uh, COVID nineteen just because of how rapidly, you know, we've seen increases in cases across the country and wanting to make sure that we can uh, decrease uh, the number of new cases as much as possible, um, but also ensuring that we're testing those people who absolutely need to be tested as quickly as possible to contain uh, the pandemic. Right. Yeah. You know, if, if if you look up Dr. Leo online, you'll see, I mean, just the very first thing, this guy is at the forefront of AIDS pre or, uh, HIV prevention and stuff like that. And my question to you is kind of what, what sparked your interest in that? And you're, I mean, you're obviously passionate about it. It's on basically every page that you're on. Uh, where did that come from? 
So that's an interesting story. Um, when I was in college at Columbus State, um, I noticed that our sexual health or, or our S, not sexual health clinic or SCD clinic, our our college clinic, you know, every college tends to have a, a health center. Our health center wasn't doing HIV testing. Uh, and I had been reading about it in my public health class in undergrad and thought we need to have testing on campus. So I developed the first World AIDS Day celebration at CSU. And so World AIDS Day is every December 1st. Um, And so I developed the first one. We collaborated with the Columbus Health Department and we uh, started getting testing done on campus. And I'm proud to say that, you know, that was in 2006. Here we are in 2020. um, And they are still doing HIV testing on the campus of Columbus State University. Wow. Wow. So from there, from there, once I was uh, at Morehouse School of Medicine, uh, one of my best friends was actually diagnosed with HIV. And I was there when he was tested um, and, you know, was really there for him during the times where it got rough, you know, for him to have this diagnosis, even though people know it's not a death sentence, they still uh, feel like it is, you know, a stain on their existence, because now it's something you have to tell a potential partner. Now it's something that you always have to disclose. And now you have a chronic medical condition since there's not a cure for HIV, right? So, you know, seeing him go through uh, that experience, but then also seeing him on the other side. Now he's undetectable. That means he has so little of the virus in his blood that it can't be detected uh, by by blood tests because he's on medication and stays on medication. Uh, seeing him having gone and get his master's of business administration and making great waves in his career. uh, I knew that I wanted to be involved in that journey for patients in the future. I knew that if I could help him through that process, that I had so much more to give to other people um, who were were struggling with uh, this new diagnosis and and how uh, to move forward with their lives. So something I just, didn't know there. So it's undetectable by blood tests, but you still have the disease in your system? Correct. Correct. So what we know about what we know about HIV is that when a person is taking their medication, uh, the the medication protects the white blood cells from the HIV virus getting in. Um, And so getting into the cells. uh, And so that causes a lot of the virus to die off. Um, And because that virus dies off, it's not detectable in the blood. But HIV is very smart. So it has these reservoirs that can be in your lymph nodes and can be in other tissues in your body. So if if my friend was to stop taking his medication, uh, the HIV would be able to come back up out of those reservoirs and infect more of his cells and there will be more of HIV in the bloodstream. So it would be detected by uh, the blood test. So the mm. consistent medication more or less contains it? Suppresses it. Yeah, suppresses it? Yes, yes. Okay. Exactly. Super interesting. Mm -hmm. So I I wanted, what I was going to ask is, so how, you know, if if that's your mission, how are you uh, going about attacking that mission day in and day out now? So 
I am attacking that mission in a slightly different focus now. Our clinics offer PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention. So PrEP uh, is the process of a person taking HIV medication daily. This is a person who's HIV negative taking HIV medication daily to prevent getting HIV if they were to come in contact with it. Um, So I've shifted more from treatment to prevention, uh, which is really in alignment with the work that we're doing uh, in public health. Uh, In my previous role, I was in the division of HIV and STD programs for LA County. So I really was both on the prevention and treatment side of HIV. Now I'm just more focused on the prevention side and ensuring that uh, when patients come into our clinics, that every patient is informed about uh, PrEP for HIV prevention and that if they are living with HIV, we refer them to an HIV clinic so that they can get on treatment and they can get undetectable too. I didn't mention this to you guys, but when a person is undetectable, they cannot pass the virus on to others. So once it's where it's not detected in the blood, they cannot pass it to someone else. So our goal is to keep people who are living with HIV undetectable so that they are unable to pass it on to others. And we know that that's helpful for their own their own bodies as well. It kind of helps boost their immune system and protect them from other infections like pneumonias, flu, mm. things of that nature. Wow, I never knew that. That is yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's good info. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure our audience wants to, because that's what everybody's talking about, kind of circle back to covid so can you break down from your perspective, and again, I know you've mentioned in the disclaimer, these are your opinions, but, but what is COVID actually and, and you know, how does it, is it basically this a, a variation of the flu or, you know, break it down in simple terms of what it really is? Sure, sure. So COVID-19, let's start with that because you're seeing COVID-19 everywhere. COVID-19 stands for Coronavirus Disease 19. And that 19 is because this strain of coronavirus, um, COVID-19, was discovered in Wuhan, China in 2019. So that 19 is when it was identified uh, in the lab as this strain of coronavirus. Now, if we take a step back, coronavirus um, is a type of virus that is a very common cause of the common cold. Um, So many of us have had a strain of coronavirus at some point in our lives because we've had the common cold. Uh, But this strain is more infectious uh, and this strain has a longer disease course, meaning that when people get this strain of of coronavirus, uh, the symptoms can last for about two weeks, whereas uh, with the common cold, it may be you know five to seven days max. Uh, now we're looking at two weeks for this. Uh, this type of coronavirus also uh, has the potential to cause people to have severe shortness of breath and respiratory distress, causing them to go into the hospitals. And so that's why we're seeing Uh, Such a focus on this is the rapid spread of it, the longer disease course, and the potential uh, for uh, people to have to go into the hospital for severe respiratory distress. As I mentioned earlier in our conversation, over 80% of people will have mild respiratory illness and will be able to... um, and we'll be able to 
survive this and not even have to go into the hospital. You know, they'll have cold or flu-like symptoms, they'll battle it at home and they'll be fine. But that 20% of people who have to go into the hospitals, if that 20% is extremely high, they can overwhelm the hospitals. And that's why we have people staying at home. That's why we have people social distancing so that they don't get it. So that that 20% of people who are going into the hospital stays low enough that we have enough beds in the intensive care unit that we have enough beds in the hospital, that we have enough ventilators, that we have enough protective equipment for our healthcare providers uh, to, pr- to protect and to treat those and get them back you know, into society. It's like containing a wildfire. No, we know a lot about wildfires here in LA and in California. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my biggest question is, what does the future hold for us? I mean, are we going to have to be walking around with masks? What what does what's Dr. Leo have to say about that? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think what the future holds for us is that we're going to have a vaccine. I think this is going to look a lot like the flu. And what I mean by that is we're going to have a vaccine. Um and so I foresee that we will have to have this vaccine updated every year in the same way that the flu vaccine is updated. We will have treatments for uh, COVID-19 in the same way that we have a treatment for flu. It's called Tamiflu. Uh, There are other versions as well that we use to decrease the course of the flu. I want to mention that Tamiflu does not uh, cure the flu. It just shortens the duration of the symptoms of the flu. Uh, So I anticipate that we'll have something similar Uh, to that for coronavirus. We're going to have more advanced tests as well. They're looking at tests that can detect antibodies for coronavirus or particularly for COVID-19 in your blood that would then tell us that you have been exposed in the past. And what we know about coronaviruses in general is that when a person has been exposed to it, uh, they are less likely to get it again. So if we know that you've been exposed and your body has built up antibodies, then um, it's more it's easier for you to care for a family member or be around other people who may um, have COVID-19 because you're much less likely to get it. So so I anticipate all of those things um, will will come down the pipeline within the next, I would say, 12 to 18 months. You know, it takes time for these things to be tested and approved before they are put into mass production. Um, But what I will say is I think society will forever be changed by COVID-19. I think the ways in which we gather are going to change and that we, at least for the foreseeable future, Uh, We'll be thinking about, you know, our spacing, our distance from each other. Um, You know, I think I think really the summer is gone. If we're if we're thinking about, you know, here and now, I think (laughs) the summer is going to be unlike any other summer, because I think that we're sheltering in place through a lot of the summer. Um, I also think that I'd want your listeners to know that with most outbreaks like this, we have a big signal. And by signal, I mean a big surge of cases. And then uh, a few months later, we tend to have a smaller signal, kind of like an earthquake. You know how you'll have a have the earthquake and then you'll have aftershocks. Right. Uh, this is similar to that, where we anticipate that after we see a decrease in this initial surge of cases, uh, that we will see a small 
increase again a few months later. Um, and so we're hoping that after that second surge, uh, we won't see um, another, but you know, only time will tell. And we may have to go back to our social distancing um, uh, strategies to prevent a bigger signal in the future. Is that second surge that you're talking about? Is that what um, they're saying? You know, this is going to be seasonal. So this fall, we should expect, you know, numbers to go up. Is that what you're talking about? Or is it just something in between now and then that uh, we should see some numbers spiking? No, I'm thinking I'm thinking fall. Fall makes a lot of sense because I don't think that we're going to be out of this until I would say at least July at the earliest. So fall makes sense because then if people begin to, you know, gather again and and things of that nature, then we probably will see that surge again in the fall or early winter. Let me okay. let me ask you this. So what's your opinion? And, and as as a doctor, you know, I've seen the argument, especially people with kids there. There are those people that are opposed to vaccinating their kids because they feel it has adverse effects. I know a lot of athletes, kids, you know, it, they say it spawns autism and all those things. What's your opinion of vaccines as a doctor? My opinion of vaccines is that, is that they are absolutely critical. They are absolutely yeah. critical. And when we don't vaccinate, we set up those children to potentially die from things that that vaccine could have prevented. Right. You know, we have seen a measles outbreak a few months before the COVID-19 outbreak. Those measles cases are in people who were not vaccinated. You know, being that I was vaccinated, for example, even if I was out in an area where a person who had measles traveled, I have nothing to worry about because my body has the antibodies uh, to measles, you know. Um, so, however, if I wasn't vaccinated and I was in that area, then I could have been hospitalized because of measles. You know, these are these vaccines are in place and have been uh, created really to protect us and to build what we call herd immunity. And the reason that COVID-19 is spreading the way it is, is that none of us have that herd immunity and herd immunity means that we have antibodies in our system so that when we come in contact with uh, the virus, we're protected so then we don't carry that virus to someone else. The herd, uh, if you will, all of us are protecting each other because we have antibodies and we are immune. Uh, so without those antibodies, that's why COVID-19 is spreading in the way that it's spreading. And once we have more antibodies in our systems and in those who have you know, tested positive for COVID or have come in contact with COVID, uh, then we'll be able to protect each other from you know, future um, outbreaks of COVID or at least from future exposures to COVID, if you will. So do scientists and doctors, uh, you know, extract these antibodies from a person and then produce more with them? Or is it all we have to suck all these antibodies out of people to be able to give it to others? Like, how does that work? So they take the antibodies, they take the antibodies from some and then they replicate them. In, That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. And, and oftentimes it's replicating them with animal models. I am not a, I'm not a bench researcher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will not go into detail about Disclaimer the Disclaimer number two. <laughs> they can, uh, I just wanted to make sure they could make more. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So. Dr. Leo, let me ask you this. Let's say you are part of that 80% that gets the COVID uh, virus 
what's the normal treatment if you're at home? Is it, you know, rest, get a plenty of sleep, lots of, lots of fluids. Yeah. Sit in your room. Um, quarantine deeper. (laughs) (laughs) I know some people are thinking quarantine deeper. I mean, how much, how much more quarantine do you want me to be? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, um, but yes, so this, the treatment for this is identical to the treatment for flu, except that we don't have actual medication that shortens the duration. Um, so what we, what we, recommend is for people to treat their symptoms. So if you have uh, a fever to take Tylenol, for example, um, any other symptoms, you would, you know, take uh, the treatment for those symptoms. Uh, You would rest, you would drink plenty of water, um, you would isolate yourself. So I want to break down the difference between isolation and quarantine. Uh, So we isolate the ill, we quarantine those who have been exposed but are not ill. Does that make sense? So the person with COVID-19 needs to be isolated to their room or a room in the house, particularly uh, a room with the bathroom if possible. So that way they are in that room alone, you know, so they can't then pass uh, the virus on to others uh, for the time that they are sick. And then the rest of the house needs to be quarantined. So they need to stay home for a period of time so that they don't go out and give that which they've been exposed to, to other people. Gotcha. Yep. So when you're not quarantining, uh, I'm assuming you're at work. Uh, walk us through um, just a day in the life with this uh, current pandemic going on. So a day in the life for me, uh, every morning we take a call with all of our colleagues that are doing this work across the county to talk about strategy as far as, you know, what what needs to be done to contain the virus. Uh, We talk about the number of of cases, new cases, the number of deaths. Um, We talk about how we need to coordinate with different skilled nursing facilities or long-term care facilities or homeless shelters, all of those places where uh, it's easy for an outbreak to spread rapidly. If you think about it, if Uh, you are in, let's say, a a homeless shelter and you're in very close proximity, once one person uh, gets sick, it's very easy for it to spread like wildfire through that entire homeless shelter or even homeless encampment, depending upon how close people are and if they're sharing Mm -hmm. facilities, you know, and things of that nature. Uh, So a lot of our focus is really on containing it in those congregate settings uh, where people, you know, are particularly at risk of passing it on to each other uh, and creating a a massive outbreak within a contained space. So as we're all working to flatten the curve and quarantining, uh, how is it in your territories? Are you guys understaffed, overstaffed? Do you have enough beds? Do you have enough facilities to treat enough people at the moment? So in our in our area, yes. And and I know that that's going to differ, you know, across across this country. And we're seeing New York City being hit very hard. But uh, our director, you know, has mentioned uh, many times in, in press conferences, you know, that we 
track every day the number of beds, the number of hospitalized, the number of um, ventilators even. We're tracking those things very regularly. And um, we are seeing that the efforts of having people stay at home and being aggressive about that early on is flattening the curve. And for that reason, our hospitals are not at this point, uh, as of you know today, overwhelmed uh, by the number of cases. And, and we do have beds and ventilators uh, available. We are seeing a shortage in um, protective and patient protective sorry, personal protective equipment. I always get that mixed up. PPE. We are seeing um, uh, some shortages in that throughout the county. And we're currently uh, trying to look at strategies of how to ensure that those those, uh, clinics or uh, facilities get more personal protective equipment. What are you doing when you're not working? Are you, I mean, do you get a lot of time off right now? I imagine it's insane. So you're probably not a lot of time off, but what are you doing in your free time when you do get some time? So what's interesting about this, this time is I feel that I've been able to be that much more focused because, you know, I have just a few places to go, right? It's either work, the grocery store, or home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so because of that, um, I work out uh, six to seven days a week. Um, my friends say that I was ready for COVID-19 or the apocalypse because I have a gym in my garage. And so I work out in my garage, um, you know, six, I will say six days. I'm trying to get to seven, but I'm at six days currently. I work out um, you know, I meal prep for myself. Um, I'm doing some reading. I'm learning Spanish, uh, and I'm launching the Practical MD. So, you know, I feel like I have plenty of things to keep me focused. I, I do want to mention, though, the fact that I am able to do all these things in this time—that uh, is privilege, right? The fact that even I'm able to continue working when we know that there are people across this country who are losing their jobs and losing their livelihood every day, that there, there is privilege in that. And that, you know, I am, I am fortunate, but I am very much aware of how this is affecting so many people across this country and the, the impact and implications that this has for years to come. Sir, it's, it's serious stuff. Like nothing we've ever dealt with. I want to kind of switch gears to something a little, uh, just a really cool fact that I, uh, found out about you that I did not know. You have an area of a building named after you at your alma mater, Columbus State University. How did that come to be? Walk us through that process. I've never even known anybody that's actually had their name on something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, that came about because one of my friends from undergrad is now the director of alumni giving at Columbus State University. And um, the science building was going through a renovation. um, And he reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in uh, naming, you know, an area within within the renovated building. Um, and I said yes for a few reasons. Uh, but the main reason I said yes is because I hope that my story, you know, will inspire other students who who came to Columbus State and and had a dream to be something much bigger than they've 
particularly ever seen in their family. I'm the first doctor in my family. And, you know, so I, I really had to, um, I really had to work hard to get to where I am. And I wanted students who sit in those study rooms. So it's um, the Dr. Leonard J. Moore student engagement area. I wanted students who sit in those rooms to know that if I can do it, they can do it. Um, and that I sat right where they sit. Um, and I've now made it to where I am in life and I'm continuing to, to, you know, build my career, but I want to leave behind a legacy. And I felt that, um, naming a space would, would be a part of that. That's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, Leo. So before we hit you with the gauntlet and I'll explain what the gauntlet is in a second, I, I need you to do me a favor when you get a moment, go on Instagram. We want to see your home gym. So shoot us a picture of your garage. I did the same thing actually right as the quarantine started. I had a whole bunch of equipment sitting in my basement that I moved up to my third garage. So I'm actually recording this in my, Johnny calls it my slash studio because it's a office slash uh, man cave slash workout gym. So tag us in, in your picture, your home gym, because we definitely want to check it out. Definitely. All right. Is so, this the thing? Hang on a sec. Is this the thing we're doing? I didn't know about this. No, I just thought it'd be cool because I I don't know. I want to oh. see his garage, his setup. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely share. <laughs> it's a it's a new thing. All right. So, Doctor Leo, the gauntlet. This is sixty seconds where Johnny and I rapid fire ask you alternating questions. The only stipulation is we are the judge and jury. So they may be your opinions, but we're the one who decides whether they're right or wrong. So <laughs> just something fun switches up the show. Leo, you ready? I mean, I know a guy of your mental caliber is ready. I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, Johnny. Ready? Go. Yep. What's your favorite white claw slash truly favor? I don't have one. I don't drink that. Okay. Is the West Coast really the best coast? Uh, hands down. The weather's amazing. Oh. Um, so you posted 30 <laughs> things online to do while social distancing. What are your top three? <laughs> Making sock puppets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> working out and uh, watching Netflix. Yep. Hand sanitizer or hand soap? Hand soap. Oh wow, what's your uh, what's your favorite artist, band, group that you're listening to right now? Oh, that's a tough one because you know I sing. Um, uh, favorite right now? Crap. Uh, Here we can mix it up. You're a singer. What's your go-to karaoke song? Ooh, good one. Oh, that's that's a really good one. Uh, my go-to karaoke song is uh, "Gone" in sync. <laughs> okay, That's we're good. out of time, but I gotta ask you. I gotta ask you two more. What, gun to your head? Would you rather go skydiving or bungee jumping? Skydiving. Okay, and the last one. This is. I, I don't know why I think this is hilarious. If if you and Kevin Hart were in a fight, who wins? <laughs> oh, I'm definitely winning. Yeah, you got a home, <laughs> hey, he's got a home gym too. <laughs> Oh man. I'm over here. I'm over here hitting my hands together. I'm like, I'm ready. <laughs> I like oh, it. I like great. the confidence. Yep. 
Well, Leo, man, this has been awesome. It's such a cool way to catch up and document it. We really appreciate the kind of simplicity, the way you broke all this stuff down. Uh, Where can everybody follow you on social media, both uh, the Practical MD account and then your personal account? So everyone can follow me on at the practical MD, T-H-E-P-R-A-C-T-I-C-A-L-M-D and at Dr. Leo 06, D-R-L-E-O 06. So I look forward to uh, everyone following, commenting, and let's get to know each other. Thank you guys for having me. This has been so much fun and a great way to catch up. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Should we play that music? Let's do it. That's pretty good. We'll get there.